Hey Emil, welcome. There we go. There we go. Hey, sorry to cause a a minor panic. Believe it or not, um, the road into my high desert hideout was closed. And so I had to take this weird back road, um, literally off-roading next to like cliff edges to get here in time. So that's why I was a few minutes late. Sorry to panic you. I just saw your Twitter messages. (laughs) No worries. We are here. We are here. Yeah. And I'm, I'm so excited to talk about this. There's a lot of interest from everyone in this because I think it's like the big tell-all reveal. Um, <laughs> I, I think a lot of people read the book um, from what you tell me. Not that many people actually watch the show, but we're, we're going to get into that. Uh, awesome. Yeah. Well, it was a, lot, it was a fun, a fun set of stories to tell. Um, and like, well, it'll be fun to sort of see what was true versus what was in the book versus what was in the show. Yeah, no, that that's a good point because we we had sort of discussed this before. Uh, the the show takes lots of liberties. I assume you, you think the book probably also takes liberties, but you know, I, the the book is obviously a lot more measured, and you know, has a sort of conventional reporting style to it, where most statements are at least sourced to something. But um, the the show itself, I mean, just again, just looking at the delta between the book and the show. There's just so many. Where to begin? Let me let me bring up my questions because um... yeah, the, the the book is the book is you know obviously got its issues, but the the, the show is next level in terms of uh, the invention factor. Right, and and some of those things, you know, are are often narratively necessary. Sometimes, like I know yeah. I know what, I know what it is to create stories that are. <laughs> interesting to read and buy and you, you adopt a certain persona, but some, some seem like total departures from the truth. So, um, let, let's, let's start with that actually. Um, and y- it's funny. I mean, uh, j- even the time ordering of the book and the show seem to be different, right? Mm-hmm. In that, for example, a lot of the gray ball stuff, which we'll get into in a second, kind of, uh, I think it's like an episode two. And then in the book, it obviously comes a lot later. Um, anyhow, I'll, I'll shut up there. What's your initial impression having watched the show? Um, and having, and then also your role, your, you play a very prominent role in the show and your role in the show changes as, as the episodes go by. Yeah. Well, I, I'd say this, that, you know, you kind of expect dramas to have dramatization, right. Um, off a book and, uh, and you know, it was interesting that Showtime marketed this in two different ways. In the show, they said this is based on a true story. And then some of their advertising, uh, to advertisers, they just said, this is true. Um, and so, you know, and I think the, when you look at interviews from the showrunners, they'd said we adhered very strictly to the book. And, and that's, that is, that's definitely not what happened. And, you know, you could point out several sort of easy things that are sort of, you know, um, very quick to point out in her black and white that were sort of not in the book and not true, but in the show. And I guess some of that stuff you have to expect, but it was sort of the volume of it and the percentage of it, which makes everyone who was there go, this just didn't happen, whether you liked Uber or not. And then for others, I think for the casual viewer, some of the stuff seems so non-credible, just like no one would ever do that, that I think they lost interest in the show and and those who compared it to we crashed or um the dropout sort of pretty universally rated those shows better as more believable just like i think people thought bad blood was was better than super pumped 
But I'll, I'll give you one example, which I think is a, is a, is a really interesting one. Um, on the first episode, one of the, I think the second scene, right? They're setting up the whole show. Um, they have this scene where they have Travis interviewing someone. And the question Travis asks is, are you an a-hole? And presumably what they're trying to say is, the, the, there's a wrong answer to that if you want to get hired at Uber, and the answer is no. So you should say, yes, I'm an a-hole. And that means, you know, you get, you're more likely to get the job at Uber, which is sort of, is very incendiary. Like, who would want to join a company, you know, any company, if that was an interview question? Um, and then I read, you know, Mike Isaac, they asked him about this in Time Magazine. They said, how much of this is real or, or not? And he said, well, the recruiters probably had a self-awareness enough self-awareness not to ask that. Um, so basically saying that's that ha that was not asked, but they made it clear to people that this was not playtime. This was a tough job. If you wanted to sign up for Uber, you had to know what you're getting into. Now, telling someone this is a tough job, it's demanding, it's really exciting, it's fast-paced, is much different than are you an a-hole. So that that was a good example of something that was just totally off, off the wall in the show relative to, to the book and even what the author said of the book. Yeah, no, I mean, there's, there's numerous scenes in, in the series in which, like, it just doesn't pass the verisimilitude, verisimilitude test, right? W one of the key ones is, I think, in episode either four or five, in which there's this sort of, you know, very confrontational meeting with Tim Cook and Eddie Q, who's the head of software and services, who, you know, used to be in my reporting line as well. <laughs> and the, what's kind of unbelievable about it is that the, 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 the meeting is used as a narrative framing device for the entire episode in yeah. which the questions that Tim Cook asked are kind of like flashbacks in Travis's mind. But the whole thing doesn't work because it kind of degenerates into this bizarre therapy session, which I've never been in a meeting with Tim Cook, but I have been in like senior tech meetings before. And there's no way that Tim Cook sits there and gives Travis, you know, therapy for three hours and serves as a framing device for like a whole epoch of, of Uber's history. Right. I mean, I mean, you told me that, that, that meeting, it wasn't the Tim Cook meeting that did happen was nothing like what was pictured in the, in the series. Yeah. I'll, I'll give some, some stuff that's never been talked about before. So, so Travis and I met with Tim Cook, obviously, you know, he's the CEO of the biggest company in the world. So you, these things are memorable um, three times. And it was always myself, uh, Travis. Sometimes we brought a guy named Matt Window, who was on my team on there. And it was always Tim Cook and Eddie Q and sometimes Phil Schiller. Um, and we talked about all things like driverless cars. Could we jointly build maps together that would be competitive with Google Maps because um, uh, Apple was trying to figure out their play in maps. Very constructive discussions. We talked about China because they did a lot of business in China and we did. Never once in any of those three meetings was any of the sort of uh, stuff uh, that was mentioned regarding sort of the geofencing or any of the problems Uber had in the App Store ever even discussed at a Tim Cook meeting. It was discussed in other meetings that ADQ was at, but never with Tim Cook. There were always, you know, very strategic forward thinking meetings, never chastising and also no therapy sessions. And also Tim Cook never threatened to invest in all of our competitors, like it said in the show, which was kind of kind of weird. Um, so that, that was just, I, I don't know where that, where that came from, but one other interesting thing, Antonio, is that at the time there was an article, Mike Isaac wrote an article about that meeting in the New York Times and he checked with our PR people and Travis and I said that never happened. He checked with Apple PR people and they say no comment like they do on everything. And I called Eddie Q 
I said, Eddie, this never happened. He said, no, it didn't happen. He's like, yeah, but our policy is not to comment. So he had two no comments and two denials. So someone must have, you know, invented what happened in that room by hearsay or something, and he published it anyway. And then that they made the book and then made the movie. So it's sort of amazing. There was no eyewitness who had confirmed this happened. And yet here we are with the whole TV episode about it. Yeah, I mean, if there's one thing that's super pumped, I think both the book and the series suffers from is I think what's encapsulated in a, I think what's a Truman Capote quote, which is, um, well, I, I'm going to adapt his quote. Every great man has his disciples and it's always Judas who talks to the reporter, right? And so <laughs> in this case, it's clear that the storyline, and again, I, I don't, I never worked at Uber. I mean, I, I, I talked to a few Uber people early on, like to kind of cross-check a little bit, super pumped, and, and they confirmed a lot of the conclusions that you told me. But it, it just feels, that you can tell that, I mean, I don't know. I, you don't have to answer yes or no, but I, I'm going to speculate that Bill Gurley was his major source for this entire, for this entire book and that um, the reason why he comes out of this massive hero who had this massive amount to do with Uber's success or failure is because he was the guy who was basically dishing to Isaac, and, and, you, and you see it in, in, in the series. It's like, aside from a few things on Greyball and, and a little bit here and there in terms of early Uber, most of it is really this kind of soap opera around the boardroom dealings of Ariana and Bill Gurley. And I, I just can't imagine, other than at the end when things got a little testy and you know, they pushed Travis out, I can't imagine that like what Bill Gurley thought and did was actually terribly important in the day-to-day running of Uber. But, but I don't know. What, what, what do you think about Bill's role and all this? Yeah, I mean, well, he's clearly a, you know, a major source for the book, and Travis never got interviewed for the book, so there's, there's that. But, but I will see even for the show, Bill Gurley and, um, and uh, Chris Saka from Lowercase, who are both part of the, the coup, the Travis coup, if you will, they're friends with Brian Koppelman. And Brian Koppelman acknowledges that they're friends. I think Chris Kusaka did a cameo in Billions. And so it's, it's you, know, you know, that's not disclosed. If you're on CNBC and you're pumping a stock, you would, you would disclose, like, yeah, I'm, I have an interest in this, so I'm pushing my own book. That was never disclosed. And maybe that doesn't have to be disclosed, the kind of thing. But that is where the story starts from, from the investor's point of view, particularly Bill and Chris. Um, and then they, ne- you know, this is a very important point. The, the Travis agreed or tried to get to talk to the to the people who are writing the show. Let me be interviewed. Let me talk. Let me meet the actor. I tried to get in touch with the actor, and it was forbidden. They didn't want to talk to us. Um, didn't want to have the actors talk to us. Didn't want to have Travis at all um, talk to the show. And what you find very strange. So you have this really one sided view where there was a refusal to engage with the main character, which is very odd. Um, for something that's supposed to be, you know, truthful. Even I believe Adam Newman and uh, Jared Leto met. They actually had a meeting uh, during Request so that Jared could figure out, you know, how to play him better. So this was a, it was definitely odd. And and Bill was important certainly to the company, but never as a, a central player. He just didn't show up to the office uninvited. That's crazy. <laughs> he, he would come to the office for meetings, and the, you know. The notion that he would just like walk into Travis's office, and by the way, Travis didn't have an office because we all sat in the open office space, is sort of ludicrous. Yeah, for those who haven't watched the series, like a common plot device is uh, the actor Kyle Chandler who plays Bill Gurley. And by the way, one of the jarring things about it is that Kyle looks more like Travis than 
the actor who plays Travis, or at least in my opinion, or it looks like an older version of Travis. I guess Travis is supposed to be, but Kyle Shanner actually kind of looks like Travis. So it's just weird when you see him and it's like that, that guy should be playing Travis. Anyhow, um, in, in the series, he just like waltzes into, to Travis's office all the time. And he like, he, you know, he waves his little badge, like an employee at the door. And it's kind of a plot device at the end when Travis can't get in. Anyhow, it's just, it's, yeah, it it paints him as practically Mm. an employee involved with Uber's success. And I, Mm. I imagine that that couldn't quite have been the case. Yeah, not not, not the case at all. Um, uh, so that, yeah, that was, again, some of these things are dramatic artifices, like you say, and some of them are fine because they're trying to make a point of he was welcome, he was not welcome. Travis's key didn't work, so that meant he was enough in the company, so I get it. But the, the constant presence and just walking in and saying, hey, Travis, here's your cost-cutting guy, Emil, which, which just sort of never would have happened or could have happened even. Right. Um, yeah, and it's very odd that, that none of the actors would actually speak to you. So you've, you've never spoken to the actor who plays you, and I have to say does kind of look like you a little bit. So it's not necessarily a, a mischosen actor. He's a very good-looking guy, by the way, just to be clear. It's a, very, it's a flattering comparison. Yeah, and his name is Bob Ektofti. He's a good guy. I reached out to him a couple of times, haven't heard, but... Um, but you know, hopefully I'll, I'll be able to someday. Um, he is good looking and young and strangely, like I'm older than Ryan Graves and the guy who plays Ryan Graves looks way older than Ryan actually was and vice versa for me with, with Bobak. So it's kind of funny. Yeah. The age thing is weird. Like it, it, it seems to me as if they were trying to intentionally age or the opposite depending on where Travis was and like, were they, well, anyhow, you wouldn't know cause you weren't on the set, but it seems as if they were trying to make him look kind of frazzled and kind of aged as the tensions ran higher in the company. Um, yeah. it was almost, it, yeah, it was almost like a, a damage score on like a first person shooter game. Like Travis's face in the series <laughs> gets progressively more haggard towards the end. Um, but well, I will say but, that both of us had more gray hairs at the end than the beginning. Um, but I was, you know, I was 40 years old and I joined the company and sort of the, the way they make us look broy, like we're like young, young cats that, you know, in their early thirties who haven't been around the block a few times was, was kind of off too. It's like, you know, hoo-hooing at each other during meetings and stuff. That's, you know, chest bumping, all that stuff was sort of just odd relative to the fact that Travis and I were both three-time entrepreneurs. Like I was in my... 40s and Travis had just turned 40 in 2016 so it was an odd odd show, odd way to show that right I mean you you had a whole long career before this right this was not like young startup bros hit it big and then don't know what to do on the contrary you were both quite seasoned um yeah by Uber. yeah well, not only quite seasoned we had like pretty old school philosophies like he Travis and I never sold a share we like unlike today it was a lot of secondary happening for entrepreneurs right we never did the private flights or anything we were flying commercial like economy in the beginning we were like we were scrapped because we'd been through many bubbles in bursi and i and so we had a we had a thesis and, and an ethos about how we wanted to to build this company and to lead by example on some of those fronts yeah i mean the, the whole broiness of it you know it's weird because it a, it's kind of a stereotype. It's not a totally false one. Even I would concede when I was at Facebook, which wasn't even that early. It was I joined a year before the IPO. You know, it was still a little bit weird in that they had like 
stained, terrible smelling carpets. Every team had like a kegerator. Like I, I you know, it, 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 it wasn't what was depicted in Super Pumped, but it, you know, it was hardly you know the very picture of uh, you know cold uh, corporate professionalism either. <laughs> I have to say, so the, that that wasn't the vibe at, at Uber at all. What's depicted? I in mean, the look, we, no. So here's here's where there's some fairness to it, and that. If your average workforce across 10,000 people is 25, and it was, right? Because we were hiring people out of college or just out of business school. Um, and so, yeah, you had actually m me probably being one of the oldest execs in the place for a long time at 40, 41. So the average age is 25, 26. You're going to have the, the sort of the cultural things that the 25, 26-year-old want. We did have a kegerator at dinner, and it was locked until dinner time. So it's not like people were drinking during the day. But they were allowed to have a beer at dinner if they stayed past seven o'clock. So there was some of that. There's certainly camaraderie and people made friends because you're working in an intense environment. Um, but he and I were, Travis and I were deadly serious in the office. I mean, we were, we were really playing with big numbers, with big, big bets all over the world. We were tired all the time because we were like working across time zones. Um, so this wasn't, you know, just sort of a party atmosphere. I remember even in Vegas where they, they say it was this bacchanal. You know, Travis and I were like having pizza at the lobby pizza shop most of it, or getting coffee, or you know, just not in the melee because we're you know we were working on other stuff. So, um, you know, the keg throwing from a Vegas hotel room that never happened, <laughs> and that stuff was just took it to an extreme that just wasn't even incredible. You know, was the thing about the the, the stolen laptop that was both in the book and the t in the series was that. Did that actually happen? Stolen laptop. Stolen. I believe that did happen. Yeah. yeah. So, so I do think there was, you know, you put, you put 10,000 people average age 26 in Las Vegas for a celebration about the company hitting a $10 billion run rate revenue milestone. And you have Beyonce and you really do celebrate when right? we, we'd set this goal out for the company. Like, yes, the odds are some things are going to go wrong. Um, but by and large, like every convention in Vegas of that side, so I'm sure there's no, there's no difference statistically than anything else, but, but for the large part, for, for by and large, for the 900, 9,900 people, everything was fine. It was fun and normal. Yeah. And for those who haven't read the book or seen the series, the, the stolen laptop thing is that, uh, there was some Uber employee who, uh, you know, was carousing with women who are perhaps ladies of the night and uh they wake up and the laptops are gone <laughs> and yeah, they have yeah. to explain it to management of uh where are the laptops <laughs> and so yeah. which which and happens resulted in immediate termination but but yes, yes that was that was uh certainly obviously if you could control something like that as a company you would but some, sometimes people just have bad judgment whether they work for a company or not Right. So to leave the lurid detail for just a second, I, I do want to touch on uh, obviously the parts to me and I, and I think probably the pull request audience that are most interesting is when you actually or when the, the book um, and the series actually touch on like, OK, how, how did Uber actually succeed? Right? What, what did it actually do? And some of it is itself kind of lurid. You mentioned the geofencing thing. For, so for those who aren't familiar, you know, there's an app review process for every app submitted to the App Store. And Uber for a long time was, I think, the number one downloaded app on the App Store, at least one of the mo most downloaded ones. And as we all know, Apple has all these often not very well-defined terms of service about what you can or can't do in the App Store. And um, 
for a bunch of reasons, Uber decided to skirt that by, <laughs> but, and, I, and it's funny, I don't know if you would know, I, I'd love to know technically how it worked because it doesn't seem to me like it'd be possible, but, but basically you, it, you made it such that if you were in a certain lat long, you saw sort of one version of the code or one build sort of manifest itself. And yeah. in, in a different lat long, you didn't. And then of course, in the series, it's depicted as some worker going home and like checking in from, from work. But I happen to know that, that actually you can't do any work on an Apple laptop without VPNing. And so I, I don't know if that would actually be true. But in any case, um, yeah, it, yeah. What, what was that about? In terms as I recall, it, you there? A, a while ago now. Um, but, you know, I found out about it because I called MediQ saying, here's what happened. Get your, get your butt down here with Travis. Right. Um, so I didn't know about it until... So sort of it had happened, but basically my recollection is um, Apple had allowed, uh, you know, has devices. And if you wipe them, um, there was still an identifier on the phone. So what was happening is some criminals were getting a hold of Apple phones and they were wipe. You're putting fake credit cards in them, taking Uber rides and then wiping the phone and doing it again. And Apple had just canceled the feature that allowed you to identify the phone. So you could stop that phone from doing the same thing over and over, but they took it out. So now you have this sort of wide open fraud vector that allowed um, these criminals to sort of, you know, buy $200 Uber rides and maybe it was with their friends. And so there was sort of a scheme going on um, and we were trying, and we were losing a lot of money from this. I mean, this was not, you know, a few hundred thousand dollars. This was, it ended up being tens of millions of dollars of losses. And I think what some engineers do, don't even know who we're like, well, we got to do this to protect so we don't go bankrupt. And, you know, we, we're going to try to make Apple not see this, which is really dumb. Um, but it was done. I'm not sure exactly how it was done. Um, but, yeah, we got called on the carpet for that. And, you know, we went in, you know, humbly and said this was wrong. will never happen again. And, it, you know, it stopped. But it was certainly tense. Um, and some version of that did happen. Yeah, I, I think it's, I, I'd have to go into the book and see when the timing was. It's probably when Apple created what's called now called IDFA, which is ID yeah. for advertising. And that, that is different than the actual like hardware level device ID that used to be unchangeable. And that was yeah. considered a, a privacy improvement because you could actually change it. And I'm guessing the code made an IP, the, the low level API call if it wasn't a certain that long and not otherwise. And then they're, they're like, you know, static code analysis or whatever just looks at the API calls it's making, and they just never saw that API call if you were within the yeah. geofence and not otherwise. It's probably was how it was done. Okay, yeah. but ultimately then. Apple fixed it too because they it was an actual problem for not just us but from any um, you know any company that was selling stuff to an app. So they eventually figured out some way to abstract the exact phone ID from some and say that well this seems like an abusive phone, so let's not allow it to do certain things um so it was it was a real problem that they acknowledged too but uh but you know we we, we were front ending trying to trying to fix it for ourselves before they fixed it right and again the hack here in case it isn't clear i mean at least as depicted in the in the series was like imagine an uber driver in china with like a hundred phones in the trunk right claiming that he's doing a hundred rides and charging for all of them when in fact there's one ride or no rides potentially and anyhow you you could see how it would be hackable and right and at, at the time again it, it seems like ancient history but Uber was attempting to actually work inside China which is something that now no American companies even try to do uh, but at the time it was a very ambitious goal for 
for a company like Uber? Yeah, I mean, the China thing was wild and the fraud vectors there in some parts of India were were really serious and really expensive. So uh, so these things, you know, with the amount of money we were spending, you know, China has, I think, what's the statistic, 25 cities over 10 million people. In the U.S., we have nine cities over one million people. Just to sort of think about the scale of China, if you're trying to compete in China and the amount of money that requires from a subsidy standpoint and you know what the fraud could cost you it was it was it was it was not to be believed the kind of money that was getting spent there yeah um the the other interesting thing maybe a slightly more white hat use of the same kind of aggressive use of the platform was this whole gray ball business which um <laughs> was sort of interesting i guess portland was the sort of the first battle in this it's funny sort of random side thing i don't know if you know or i assume you worked with uh, bradley tusk back in the yeah, day sure. yeah yeah so i i've had lunch with him once in fact i think i blurbed he wrote a book called the fixer which is actually a pretty good look into i mean not just uber but just i think he was the campaign manager for bloomberg's mayoral run in whatever mm-hmm. year that was and so and you know he is a fixer basically he's the guy who at least according to his own book, I, you know, I don't know what the real story is. He helped with a lot of the sort of legislative battle and political battle in New York, getting Uber yes. approved for New York service. Um, yes. And anyway, the struggle depicted in the book is, is less the New York one and more, or, or the series, is the Portland one in which I guess they would have, I, I can't even imagine what agency regulates this, but whatever agency regulates this, um, you know, like law enforcement effectively, although, you know, undercover calling Ubers and then sticking massive fines to the poor driver who showed up and then you know uber took the side and that, that was one of the i remember this even back in the day one of the interesting thing uber typically did was to you know try to rally either the users or the drivers in its political struggle against the city saying look you know drivers are making a living users want the service like write to your congressman or whatever it was and do something about it but in in this specific case just to address what gray ball was you know one yeah. of these one of these enforcer dudes who somehow you figured out who it was would see what you know would look like almost like a dev version of the uber yeah. map like literally phantom you know drivers that would never show up and they would just sit there frustrated all day and nothing would ever arrive <laughs> they were sort of mystified yeah. is that really how it went down yeah so so um so I read about Grayball in the New York Times. You know, that was another scoop by my Mike Dazic. Um, you know, Grayball is a complicated thing, and I'll tell you why. Um, it, you know, every company that has has an app or a service has terms of service. And in the terms of service, we wrote that this app is not supposed to be used to call um, cars for reasons other than taking the ride, right? So that was the thesis. And we said, okay, if certain law enforcement or other actors are abusing the system by not abiding by that, well, then we don't have to honor their request for a ride. And this really started because of violence unless for evading, you know, regulators. It would, and what happened in Italy, which was one of the hardest markets for Uber, but the taxi, this, this sort of taxi mafia and the police were in cahoots. Um, and so what would happen is the taxis would get the cops to order an Uber down the dark alley and some poor driver would go driving down the alley and get roughed up and sometimes worse than roughed up um, just for driving for Uber. So one of the inventions was to say like, okay, if we found, if we, there was a way to know who was abusing the app, whether it was law enforcement or Southern or their criminal element, well, then we would not let them essentially see cars and order them effectively. And it was really for a driver safety thing where it started. Um, and it was, 
it was run through the legal department. There was literally a working group in legal department saying, is this legal? Let's make sure we can do it. Let's write our terms of service. Um, and that was Sally Yu, who was the general counsel who ran that through. And it was like vetted eight ways to Sunday. But it sounds bad um, when, when you think about it in a Portland context. If you think about it, about some driver getting their arm broken down an alley in Italy, in, in Milan, then it sounds less bad. But uh, that's, that's what it was. Interesting, because that's not the way it's represented at all. Of course, in the theatrics of the series, they're in like some dark bunker war room and 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 Travis orders it. And then what is considered like there's like these two kind of slightly whiny engineers who are the ones always raising objections to Travis's plans. Um, they're kind of introduced in that scene. One of them would end up being the leaker leaking to this fictional journalist that I want to talk yeah. about in a second. But in any case, it, it shows that, it, it you know, in, in the series, it went through no legal review whatsoever. And it was Travis ordering it by fiat. And it was this big Faustian bargain and ha 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 ha. The whole like very simplistic moral script of the of the series. Yeah. Well, even in the book, Michael Isaac explicitly says, and in our New York Times article, this was reviewed by legal. So even he, again, didn't exercise his, his sort of fact, uh, you know, the knowledge of certain facts in the context of producing the show, um, because obviously, you know, that kind of thing was run was run through legal all the time. We had a huge legal department for this reason, because we were in this very regulatory, difficult, you know, position. Um, so yes, that wasn't portrayed in the show. And I guarantee you, Travis never pointed at a screen and go, "You just got grayballed, mf'er," which is what the show show showed. It, you know, this was a locally distributed thing. Like the manager of a city would do it. Um, Travis is not sitting in some war room with a god view looking at this and trying to like pinpoint people around the world. It was sort of silly. Right. Well, I mean, in Mike Isaac's possible defense, when you sell a piece of IP, like he's not necessarily sitting in the writing room making all the calls <laughs> along the way, right? Like, but um, although yeah, you, no, you, yeah, but I will say this: you, I don't know if you've read this quote for him on Vanity Fair. So there was a question that said, "But at some point, I'm sure this is the author, the a question saying, I'm sure you're like, did this really happen? And you know, this is what really happened." Is Mike Isaac talking? And the writers are like, "Yeah." That's cool, but let's not do that. And the question was, is that a part of your journalistic heart that cries a little when that happens? <laughs> and he said, I do have to check some feelings at the door. So he knew they were doing something, things that weren't true. And he just said, I had to check my feelings at the door. Right. Um, yeah, well, you know, I mean, journalists have to buy SF Real Estate too. I mean, so. <laughs> <laughs> They're totally. They're, I mean, it's a, it's a money making enterprise. I get it. Um, although I do wonder how much you made because I you, you quoted some Nielsen numbers at me and they're not great. And um, in any case, um, yeah. so huh, interesting. So the other thing I would say is the way Travis is shown, and and I take it, um, you know, the the Gordon Levitt, you know, the actor is in some sense playing it up towards the end. It, it seems it, it it pictures Travis as kind of this very egomaniacal but like petulant child almost right mm -hmm. who loses his temper constantly and is super obsessed with himself and seems to have kind of a, an inferiority complex with respect to other startup CEO or other CEOs like Zucker Bezos I I don't know it, it's I it, would, <laughs> would you describe that as a fair characterization um I mean definitely look Travis the, the show I guess when Jason Gordon Levin came off of this, this chumpy chest beating kind of ape yelling all the time yelling 
and I, I know all, most of the Uber people who are either on this call or I've talked to about the show, are like, there was never that much yelling at Uber by Travis or anyone. In fact, you know, we sat in a corner of the office, um, Travis and I did with some other execs, that it was like designed to be quiet because, you know, he didn't like a lot of noise when he was working, and neither did I. It just wasn't a noisy, yelly place. Um, it's certainly not this chest beating version of it. Um, but no, I've never, like, he was, you know, he and I both, again, we're three time, four time entrepreneurs. We were like, we found the big one. We're going to make it as big as it can. We're going to hold every share. We're going to go, we we'll do this for 20 years. This is our thing. But it was never so that we could be like Bezos or be like Zuck. It was so that we could be ourselves. And we used to joke that a lot of companies would say, I'm the Uber of, you know, dry cleaning or whatever. And we used to say, like, who would ever say that? You want to be your own company. I want to be the Uber of Uber. I don't want to be Jeff Bezos or Zuckerberg, whatever. We want to be us. Um, so that sort of inferiority complex. And I think you can confirm it from people who work with Travis. He did definitely did not have. Huh. Interesting. Yeah, because, because by the end, uh, the, you know, TK character is totally losing it. And, like, I actually have to almost skim the end of the – the last episode because it was just like him literally losing it in front of everybody that was sort of yeah. that he'd work with the entire series and it just seemed a little bit excessive and probably yeah. unrealistic um yeah. well so so a couple of things there so so one is and again you have to do this i guess for some reason you you always have to personalize things a lot of travis's sort of relationships with his family with his brother mm -hmm. with Ariane Huffington, who was on the board, like a lot of those form kind of the basis for the last two episodes, and it becomes less mm -hmm. and less about what's actually going on at Uber. Um, mm -hmm. Again, do you, you know, not that you're speaking for Travis, but I'm, I'm just curious, was any, was any of that accurate? Was that actually coming into play and reaching ahead at the same time that the sort of Uber yeah. drama was? Um, you know, some very, I, I do say, I will say one of the things that bummed me out the most was these conversations throughout the episodes of Travis talking to his mom, which of course they had no idea about, right? There was only Travis and his mom on the call and his mom was dead. And for them to sort of characterize this sort of thing where she's trying to make him a better man. It's just, you know, I just felt bad for Travis's family that had to relive that knowing that it was totally not, not true because how would, how would Brian Koppelman know that what Travis said and his mom said to him, but that's one piece. But the, the other piece was Ariana was definitely important to both Travis and me because she was one of the first independent board. She was the first independent board member. She's the first female board member. She, she herself was a two-time entrepreneur. In, the, in the, the TV series, they make her seem like this loosey-goosey horoscope readings, Bengali thing. And she's not. She's like hardcore entrepreneur. She built Huffington Post on her own after a divorce, raising two kids. And now she's built this company Thrive. It's worth several hundred million dollars. She's, she's a beast. Um, and she never meditated with Travis or whatever it showed I couldn't show. Um, but I did say, but, but Travis's family did play a role toward the end um, because his mom died uh, and his dad was in the hospital after this boating accident, which happened literally a week before the Holder report played out. And a week, and, and it, you know, unfortunately, it was so devastating to him that it provided Benchmark and Gurley um, the opportunity to really you know, in my view, prey on, you know, that event and the weakness that would cause any of us, the emotional weakness, um, to sort of try to force him to resign. And that's sort of how it played out at the end. And it was really, it's really kind of dark, if you think about it. Right, which is not how it's depicted at all in the, um, 
in in the series. Like there, it's seen as sort of a palace coup, and as you said, Ariana's depicted almost as like this woo woo hippie who's like burning, you know, incense and shit. Like, which I imagine is probably not true. Um, but then, yeah, how? So how did it? To, the climax of the series is obviously the last episode and the sort of yeah. defenestration of Travis. How how did that actually happen in the context of yeah. the whole family tragedy and the whole thing? If if you're willing to talk about it. Yeah, I mean, look, this, and this has never been told before just because, you know, um, there's always been this sort of benchmark uh, girly version of it that's, you know, trying to protect their own brand. Um, because obviously if entrepreneurs knew what really happened, it would be sort of problematic or you at least have a lot of questions about why you'd want to take their money. Um, but what had happened at the end was was that, you know, this tragedy had happened. Um and then the, the Eric Holder meeting happened where they, they read out the results of the um, of the Holder report. And it was, the, the Travis, it was recommended that Travis take a leave of absence to both to deal with the family tragedy, but also sort of re, reassess some leadership, you know, tactics and make sure he was ready for the next phase of Uber. And it was indefinite. It was, it was you know, agreed by a unanimous, the board unanimously agreed to it. He agreed to it. Uh, but it was the contours weren't set up. Like there was no interim CEO. There was nothing. So, um, you know, Travis didn't show up to the office anymore. But he was recruiting this one COO candidate to hopefully take over and provide some leadership in his absence because we didn't know how long it was going to be. And that and that's where Benchmark actually sent, you know, goon style um, Matt Kohler and and Peter Fenson from Benchmark to deliver this letter which they call in the show sort of a demand letter or something like that. It was it was a letter saying, we are going to smear you with these allegations unless you resign. That's what that was. Um, and there's a quote in, in this book called uh, The Power Law of Venture Capital and the Making of the New Future. I don't know if you see this, but Gurley actually talks quite a bit about this for the first time, um, where he makes this quote about this company called The Movie, this, this uh, movie called The Movie Life, and he says, the alien escapes, it gets out of the box somehow and ends up killing everyone on the spaceship and it heads to Earth and kills everyone there too. Um, he said, well, Travis is exactly like an escaped alien. If we let him out of the box at any point during the day, he'll destroy the world. So he's like, that's like, I'm falsely going to imprison Travis without independent counsel with a smear letter or a resignation letter. I mean, you think about that. Right. And and the board didn't approve this. The board approved the leave of absence. They didn't sort of approve, you know, a, a, a to, you know, a resignation attempt or, uh, or forcing him out. And, you know, Benchmark and these guys represented who, who were behind that hundred to a couple hundred million dollars of capital. We've raised 15 billion dollars of capital. The other 14.5 billion dollars for the shareholders were not consulted on this. So. It was, it was, this is why it was dark and sort of way more sinister than people understand how it went. And, and that's why it became fight after that, because Travis was in a sort of compromised position and they took advantage of it. Oh, so I didn't, I didn't actually realize that was Matt Kohler and Peter Fenton who were like, yeah. I mean, in, in the series, they're almost depicted as almost like interns, but I, I guess they're <laughs> considerably more senior than that. Um, Interesting. Yeah, and I remind people the five, you know, Benchmark's an equal partnership. So that was, you know, they were partners with Bill Gurley, Peter Fenton, Matt Kohler. Also, Sarah Tabel and Eric Vishria, right, who obviously could have had a say in, in stopping this if they wanted. I don't know how they voted or whatever, but, you know, those five people are the ones who who hired their own PR firms, their own white-collar criminal law firms, their own um, 
Stanford Law, um, game theory professors on their own, not the board hired them, benchmark hired them sort of in their long-term effort to oust, to oust Travis. And this was sort of also depicted, you know, described in this book, the parallel book. Um, there was a deliberate strategy before the, the Holder Report to get Travis out by any means necessary. I mean, imagine your investor made $10 million in paper profits sticking white collar criminal lawyers on you and whispering to the media that you know y'all are criminals you're going to jail and, and then scaring all the other investors is really some devious stuff that does not sound pretty um i mean so some of that's actually so it's funny that you know the series we shouldn't characterize that it's completely one-sided right i mean it does yeah it does make fun of the enforcement people it shows the plight of the drivers who get shut down by enforcement and like why are you doing this it it what, what I guess are now the, the, Matt, the Matt Kohler and the Peter Fenton characters actually are initially not on board with it because they realize that they'll be perceived negatively in the community because mm -hmm. being anti-founder is kind of a cardinal sin in Silicon Valley, um, at least these days. Yeah. Um, so it does depict all that. Um, so I'm curious, uh, <laughs> you, know, it, the, you know, the show is, is very, I would say it's almost cliche, right? In the sense that it it's not, doesn't even rise to the Aaron Sorkin level of kind of like traditional, like what is the sort of narrative gloss that you expect in a Netflix series? Like it mm -hmm. actually is a little bit more of a, a throwback to like old school trips. Like at the end, you actually do have this closing credit scene where every major character is depicted like with the real photo and the actor photo <laughs> yeah. and then what happened after. And you can tell they're sort of picking sides in that those who are yeah. depicted as the good guys in the series end up well and those who are not do not, although there's still the thing of, ah, damn it, Travis is actually doing pretty well with this whole <laughs> ghost kitchen thing, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, I'm curious yeah. how, so what is it, what's it, so, it's funny, a few weeks ago, I actually did like a PayPal reunion thing in which uh -huh. basically every founder of PayPal except one was on this same show that you're on right now. And, yeah. you know, I, and I didn't know how that would go down because, you know, if you read uh, the book in question, The Founders, which I think is a much more interesting book than yeah. Super Pumped. Um, you, you know, there was still a lot of heat back then, right? And coups and all that stuff. Yeah. So do you do you think, not that I'm proposing it, but do you think you could do like an Uber reunion with all the characters and people would get along or would it actually turn into a total shit show in a fist fight? If you uh, <laughs> I mean, I don't, I don't think there's reconciling with Benchmark given sort of the severity of how this went down. And also, it might be different, I would say, Antonio, if Uber stock was trading at $100 a share or $100 billion. I know Benchmark, you know, when they ousted Travis, they sort of promised, they tweeted out this thing, you know, primarily for employees and investors to say, we believe in two years, by 2019, Uber will be worth $100 billion without Travis and Emil and all these guys. And of course, today it's worth $50 billion, five years later, right? So it'd be different if everyone had won at the end and the sad, the saddest part about it is kind of everyone lost benchmark lost the employees lost the investors lost we all lost you know sleepless nights and reputation you know everyone lost um and so i think the notion that we get back together in some you know brady bunch reunion type thing is un unlikely um but more and more, I will say this, that employees and executives who've left the company, whether it's Tuan, Pham, who was the CTO for years and years, are realizing that the mistake that was made by, by Benchmark and some of the investors and how that's really caused a lot of value destruction. And, you know, some of those people have come around, but I can't imagine that, that the ego would let Bill or Benchmark ever sort of atone for, for that mistake. 
How about the Uber crew? Like, what's what's your relationship with Travis, like, or Ariana, or anybody anybody else in the in the series? Yeah, I mean, my my relationship with Travis, you know, Godfather and my daughter, you know, we're friends. Our dad, my our eighty year old dads are friends, um, so we're you know we're tight. Um, I'm friends with Ariana. I'm an advisor to her company, um, and you know, uh, I see David Drummond every once in a while. Another thing, David Drummond was sort of gone from the board for all this, right? He resigned in 2016. Um, I'm friendly with him. Uh, you know, Garrett and I run into each other now and again. Ryan and I text once another now and again, but it's not you know, Travis and I have the strongest relationship I think there um, at the exec level, you know, and that's but that's about it. Yeah, it's one of those interesting things that often, like, you spend time in the trenches, and sometimes that's like sticks as a lifelong relationship. And sometimes you remember it nostalgically as like this golden period in time, but somehow your paths diverge and like it just doesn't quite happen. I, you know, I've definitely had that with some of, some of my co founders um, and or experiences at Facebook or whatever. It's like, yeah, sometimes it's a lifelong bond. Yeah, sometimes you, bo- you both just keep it as this nice memory of this time you worked together, and, I, and that's the end of it. Um, <laughs> It's yeah. weird how that how that works. I just remember, by the way, that Chris Saka, by the way, has a has a has a appears in my book because he was an investor in my little YC company. And um, anyway, I won't add to what I said there, but he was a he was a tricky character to have as an investor. I have to say. <laughs> yeah, I mean, he, he's a very good investor, but but you know, had a lot of feelings about the company and sort of a lot of power plays. And you know, at the end, I think collaboration with Benchmark, you know, he's, he's smart, so. You know, it was we had a tough shareholder base. If I had to do it all over again, I think the thing I would have done differently is just figured out a way to sell some of the get you know get some of these early shareholders who were getting nervous because they saw all this paper gain. Get them out, get them liquidity so they can go move on. Because the late stage investors who invested when we were worth fifty billion, sixty billion, seventy billion, like needed us to triple from there, and were they understood what they were getting into that the business was getting harder because we were making more progress and doing eats and. We're doing a lot more things. So that's sort of a, something I teach and talk to young entrepreneurs about is if, they're, if the company grows too fast, you actually have to be careful about existing members not sort of getting gun shy and get loss, getting loss aversion where they start to get scared, you know, and so better to get them out with some liquidity if you can so that it doesn't impact you the way it did us. Yeah, I mean, you mentioned it before, and it's funny, I had this conversation with my girlfriend who's the founder of a CEO now, and she's totally come of age in the current startup bubble, which maybe is coming to an end before our eyes. But in any case, where secondary liquidity is just considered assumed like, oh yeah, of course founders can, you know, raise a series B and then cash out 10 million. It's like, what the fuck are you talking about? Like there's, there's no way you could do that at any level of the fundraise as little as like five or six or seven years ago. But yeah. suddenly there's all this liquidity on the table that there wasn't before. And I mean, the way you're framing it, it's like a good thing. And I, I guess it can be for some, but it, well, on the other I mean, hand- I'd say yeah. it for investors, not for entrepreneurs. Like get the investors to sell if they're, you know, they had their gain, you know, here's a couple of billion dollars that you made in profit, you know, go buy your third house in Tahoe, whatever, just leave us alone while we try to go build this company for the next 10 years. Um, that's what I was saying. Um, but a funny anecdote though, just, just to show you how frugal we were at the time, you know, I was, I bought dinner for Travis for four years because I had, you know, I had, he had no cash. So we were... You know, we were running around town. And I was, I was, uh, I was fronting him money because you know we had this old school ethic. I know of of not getting liquidity until we can give everyone else liquidity. Right? That was the principle. We're going to be in the boat with you. And yeah, that's changed a bit. 
You know, it's funny. I, I, I had a tweet go semi-viral recently in which I said that, like, well, you know, it's hard to take this whole, you know, venture capital doom and gloom when people are considering $10 million rounds, seed rounds. Like, I'm old enough to remember when 500K was, like, a healthy – that's what that's what the seed round of Adgrok, my little YC company, was on a, on a $3 million post or pre. I can't remember. And that was, like, middle of the pack YC but considered perfectly respectable for a seed round. And there were some, some troll dudes. Obviously, young kids like, oh, yeah, old man. What, you walked to school on the snow? Both of us like, no, motherfucker. You're just living high on the hog in this bubble. You have no idea what, like, normal life is like. And you think you're, you know, the, the current, the present day is normal. And it's like, it isn't. And by the way, last I checked, all the big, like, behemoth, titan, landmark companies were all founded in that period, not this period. Yeah. Like, like, show me what amazing unicorn, you know, with radically new consumers consumer or like hard technology is, is actually coming of age in a world where a seed, you know, a seed round is 10 million, you know, $10 million because it doesn't seem yeah. to be happening as far as I can tell. Um, yeah. yeah. It's a different world, but look, you know, the one, the one counter to that is that technology, you know, with the iPhone and sort of web 2.0 just became more global. You could actually do business globally. Um, and that required more money, um, than before, right? If you're an e-commerce player, you could just do more things globally now because, you know, more of the world is connected. So there is just, you know, there's just more money that you can do stuff with now um, than there was back then. Yeah, I mean, the global thing is interesting because, you know, the, you know, the whole like tired SF, you know, S, well, Silicon Valley trope is like, oh, we're changing the world. And, it, you know, it seems like kind of a joke, but then it's actually true in the, in the case of companies like Uber and Airbnb, you know, for the reasons you said, like literally, you know, uh, 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 a Travis butterfly flaps its wings in California. And then in Milan, you've got some guy getting his arm broken because he's going against like the local ta taxi mafia or whatever. Or in my case, I actually wrote, I'm a Spanish citizen. I wrote Chaos Monkeys living in a series of Airbnbs in Barcelona. And I have to say Airbnb kind of destroyed Barcelona in the sense that it, I, I think it was its biggest European market. And it basically turned all of like the old town of Barcelona into one massive Airbnb hotel slash theme park. And like entire buildings were just full of like English lager louts and like Swedish tourists and whatever. <laughs> and the city just stopped being a city. I mean, there was even signs hanging from balconies and the whole thing. And it's like, you know, I used to joke, it's like, you know, Airbnb killed the city way faster and quicker than like Franco did during the Civil War, right? Like it was just literally <laughs> in the span of months that, you know, the, the very character of the city completely changed. And it's all because of, you know, a bunch of coders inside some building in Soma. And they're probably not even in Soma anymore, but um, it's interesting. Yeah, I think, I think that's, uh, that's true. I will say one other thing in the, in the, in the show, like I was telling you, it was like, you've been gray ball that effort. The other thing in the, in the show, the show is like, we're in the war world changing business. And what was funny about that is that Travis and I both thought when entrepreneurs would say we're changing the world, that was really douchey to say that. <laughs> so like people, what we would say is like, we're trying to change transportation, like try to make it more modest. And we would enforce that and people work there. It's like, don't tell people we're changing the world. We're just transportation. Um, just because we, you know, we thought it was, and, and again, that's part of this chest beating Broy portrayal in the show that that sort of missed missed the mark on things like that. Yeah, well, yeah, people don't actually want the reality because often the reality is actually a lot weirder and crazier than the yeah. sort of very simple stereotype. But it, you know, it's funny. A lot a lot of the show reminded me again. I, I, and this time, I will sound kind of like an old fart. Like you know that that period in like the early aughts from like 2010 yeah. to like 2015 in Soma. 
the creamery was there. All the companies that mattered were within like a five block radius. Yeah. SF was totally different. The whole anti-tech backlash, Trump, media, whatever bullshit hadn't quite happened yet. And it was just such a feeling of both promise, promise and excitement and energy. And you could just tell like, man, like big things are happening. Like it's not quite clear where this is going. Like we're on this train that's just speeding out of control. And you know, it's funny, you go back to San Francisco now and it's kind of, it's not that at all. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I remember those times that were so heady and so fun and optimistic and i remember you know i at one mo in one period of time i'd interviewed to be you know travis's right hand man chief business officer at uber you know chief, say sort of a similar role at airbnb and, and a similar role at spotify all within a month like all those companies were, were just growing and getting started um and it was you know there was a and then dropbox was hot i mean all these things were happening right at that same moment and it was really optimistic in san francisco then yeah i mean as people say now silicon valley isn't a place it's a state of mind which i guess yeah. is sort of true but then it also means that it all it all happens very virtually and like you know i'm starting to kick around web3 and talking to web3 entrepreneurs and it's like i try to ask like where's the center of gravity like is there an actual physical center of gravity and it's like not really like <laughs> i'm in lisbon yeah. there's a bunch of guys in berlin there's some guys on the west yeah. coast east coast and like no they're, they're really i mean there's conferences like it's funny all of all of life has become that sort of weird hybrid work from home model where everyone stays wherever the hell yeah. they are and then goes to some conference once a quarter. And that's kind yeah. of like what, what life has become, which I mean, it could yeah. be worse. I don't, I guess, I don't know. It's yeah. not the same. It's not the same. And also I don't know what's going to work. We're about to go through like a global AB test where some companies are going to do things like fully in person and some are going to be half, half and some are going to be fully remote. And we'll see like what's working at what, which companies work and not and don't work. And if that change, or is it a type of company that works better in one of those three, you know, um, directions or not? But yes, yeah, so the in-person excitement thing has has not been there for a while, really anywhere. Yeah, and I have to, and I have to imagine to well-funded companies like you know, I've, I've started at like early-stage teams where it's like the product lead, me or whatever, and like four or five engineers and a data scientist and some sales ops guy, right? And right. man, in-person really really does make a difference. Like it's a lot easier to build shit when you can like lean over to the engineer and say, Hey, what the hell's going on with this? And you spend 15 minutes at the whiteboard and you solve the problem and you move on versus everything being like, you look at your calendar. It looks like a fucking game of Tetris going on. You're on like 10 zooms a day. It's like, I, I don't necessarily mind it. It doesn't drive me crazy. Like it drives other people, but it loses a little bit of the magic. And I, and I have, and I think the product velocity is actually lower than, than the alternative. I, I agree with that. I, I, I remember, you know, some of my best moments at Uber were just like, I was about to go home and then I see some like commotion in a conference room and I walk in and people are like debating this like really important topic and I wouldn't, you'd have missed it. Right. And you got to contribute and you get to see how people's brains work and you get to potentially solve hard problems collectively. And so that, that is something that I, I don't know how it gets replicated in the new world. Yeah. I mean, in theory, right? Everyone takes the weekly offsite to some interesting location and it all happens yeah. at once. And then you go back to your respective homes. I, I don't know. That's what the, that's what the GF does these days with her startup. And man, it just, it feels kind of odd, <laughs> but yeah. Um, yeah. We'll um, see. Interesting. Well, Emil, this has been a very interesting conversation. I don't know if you got everything off your chest that you wanted to, um, <laughs> you know, one thing we, we occasionally do with guests that aren't going to, you know, precipitate, weird behavior is maybe have callers come up and ask questions. Do you feel comfortable doing that or would you rather yeah, not? Yeah, sure. No, no, there's no, there's no question. I'm not, I'm not okay. answering. Um, or if, okay. I, if I won't, I'll say I can.
for anyone asking. <laughs> okay. I mean, this is like the Looney Tunes cartoon, so I can always reach out with the cane and like yank the person off stage because okay. Colin allows that. So anyone who's listening who wants to make the use of social audio instead of just passively listening to a podcast and come up and ask Emil a question about the series or Uber or anything else, by all means, come on up. Let's see if anyone decides... What I found is actually people get pretty bashful and it's rare to actually have, um, even with like super interesting guests that normally would, you know, would get lots of questions. Nobody's asking, huh? It's also yeah. a weird time. I have to say, you know, usually it's a little bit after work hours on Pacific. Yeah. Yeah. So people are like tuning in after work or driving home or whatever. Well, it looks like nobody's coming up. Fascinating. That's fine. Huh. Um, you okay. know, I, I, I'll give you a few more observations then you could, you can, sure. you can go let go. But, but you know, the, um, there was other weird parts of the show where like, Travis had this girlfriend, I guess. Um, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes. And she, I never met her. And so she wasn't part of the Uber story. And I think Travis said they'd broken up even before Uber started or maybe in the first year, but they have her throughout the show and then they have her overlapping with Gabby, none of which was true. And he did a lot of weird things with their character. Like they had her asking Travis for $100 million, which she never did. She's a really kind person. I met her only at Travis's mom's funeral, um, but they, we, I don't know what they were trying to do with that. Um, but it was just, there was a bunch of weirdness. And I did th- again, think the weirdness contributed to like, what is this show trying to do? You know? Um, and it stretched the truth. And maybe that wasn't harmful to have her sort of be this recurrent character for 10 years throughout the Uber journey, but it was strange. And I don't know if it added anything. I was going to ask you about that, but I, I didn't want to get too touchy. I mean, so for those who haven't seen the series, so there's like the previous girlfriend who is positioned as kind of like the moral conscience slash, you know, slightly more principled super ego of Travis who like chimes in. And when Travis is, is breaking down into some, you know, egotistical tantrum, which again is probably an unrealistic representation, the, the Angie character would like yank him out of it while also being kind of mercenary and again asking him for a huge amount of money, which is weird because of course she's. Uh, from what I, I looked her up before, this is a very successful entrepreneur in her own right. Yeah. And, and doesn't seem like the sort of person who'd be like asking a former partner for money, frankly. Um, but, and, and then she was contrasted to the sort of young hottie character that Travis wooed at a concert. And yeah, it, it just introduced this sort of romantic element. And it's funny because you see this a lot in a lot of these tech stories. They try to introduce like the romantic erotic element. And it's like, man, you know what tech life is like? It has like none of that. <laughs> There's like zero in the workplace. So it's, 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 so that's when I, when I saw that happening, I'm like, man, this, this sounds hard to believe. So it sounds like that was not actually how, how it all went down. Not, not, not even remotely close, but um, maybe it was trying to show that Travis had a relationship and he had this different side to him. I, I don't know, but, uh, but it was, you know, again, I'm, I haven't talked to Angie about it, but I'm, I'm sure she's like, what the hell? Like I didn't ask anyone for a hundred million dollars. And, and, you know, there was a lot of those things where they really, you know, they really kind of came after some people, which I didn't think they would. Austin, who's a recurrent, recurrent actor, uh, you know, part in the show, they have Susan Fowler and spilling her guts and, and Austin basically saying, you know, deal with it, which was, would ne- never have happened ever, ever, ever have happened. Um, so it's just, just stuff that they just added in there gratuitously. And Austin was an early, if I'm getting the story right, was an early Uber employee, and she herself 
had a sort of interesting backstory and, and Travis yeah. kind of helped her get out of her. I, I believe she had either drug or alcohol issues and yeah. Travis helped her get out of that and stay sober and become a yeah. successful Uber employee. Yeah. She was a, ma- she was a major success story. It's one of the stories that's like, most, you know, Travis is most proud of. And, and we, as a company were, is like you took the idea at Uber was that you could be anything. You didn't have to graduate from college. If you're willing to work hard and you were smart, um, so, and you were willing to sort of try different roles. Like there was a place for you at this company. Um, and she was a great example of that. And she succeeded. She actually rang the bell when the, when the company went IPO. So she's like a central part of that story coming from nothing and having this, this problem. And so that she's present in the show probably more than she was at the company, but, but, um, but they sort of put her in this really bad situation, which wasn't, which wasn't accurate, which I found odd. Okay. Well, so we do have a caller. We have Patrick. Let me, uh, okay. go ahead and take the next caller. There we go. You're on the air, Patrick. Cool. Can you hear me? Yes. Yep. Awesome. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks for doing this, Emil. I appreciate the the opportunity to ask you a question. Um, What would you have done, like, differently with Uber, like, you and Travis, as far as, like, product to, like, make it grow more than where it's at to date? Um, Yeah. Just kind of curious on that. Yeah. I mean, you know, I think had we kind of continued, there's a couple of things that would happen. Number one... You know, we were when Travis and I were gone. We were well, way ahead of DoorDash in food delivery in the U.S. Way ahead by like three times. And today, I think Uber's even plus Postmates is less than half the market share of DoorDash. And what that change is not only sort of a loss of value, but DoorDash now is doing Dash Mart, and they're doing you know lots of other things that Uber Eats is sort of not doing or not doing as well because they have to they're playing catch up on market share. And I think we probably would have done an Instacart competitor very quickly as well. Um, so we would have had probably at least three lines of business now and been sort of the, you know, the market leader in the two that we're not today, which is food delivery in the U.S. and, and grocery delivery in the U.S. And you're talking about, you know, that being a company that's multiple times the size and value that it is that it is today. But those were the ideas that we were going to be the urban logistics network. That was always what Uber was, moving people moving hot food, moving things, moving groceries uh, efficiently around the city because we had this, you know, this network that could get things from one end of the city to the other faster and cheaper than anyone else in the world. Well, to, yeah, to follow, thank you, Patrick. So just to follow up on that, Emil, if you're willing to opine, what, what do you make of uh, Dara's leadership, uh, who was the post-Travis situation? Um, you know, I do think, so let me start with the good stuff. I think, I think Dara is a good diplomat and he's a calm presence and the company needed that diplomacy and calm presence after what we went through in 2017. I just think it got dialed back into like being passive. Um, and that's what the Uber culture has become. And that's why sort of a lot of most of the great people have left there and gone on to other exciting things and it became less competitive and less passionate and so on. So I think, while you had to dial it back a certain way and Dari was good for that, it sort of, it went from wartime to peacetime overnight and the company hadn't won yet. And I think that's something that investors, particularly benchmark missed. They thought that this was a machine and would just keep, just keep going. All you need to do is like decapitate the top and then, you know, PR would be fine and the company would just like grow to infinity. What they realized is like we hadn't won yet. And, and it was the point was DoorDash literally turning market share from around from being one third of Ubers to three times Ubers. 
um, Lyft gaining market share, Ola and India gaining market share, um, you know, all these things started to lose. And then Dar started to say things like, we want to be number one or number two in every market. Could you imagine Travis Rice saying we want to be number one or number two in every market? <laughs> you know, it was sort of this, no, we want to be number one. We might end up with the silver medal, but damn it, we're going for the gold medal. Um, and that sort of is a good example of the difference between this this sort of leadership and, and, and what we had back then. Yeah, it's funny that that business of like that, that whole business of like a wartime versus peacetime CEO is like one of these weird MBA truisms that I've, I don't know that I've ever quite believed, but it's, it's, it's definitely true that there's definitely people who are, who are adjusted to war or the thought of war and, the, and those who kind of aren't, I guess. And yeah, I, I think there is in that it's that when you're hyper growing, it's war because like everything is designed against you, right? The societies don't want to move that fast. Regulators want to cramp you down and you know there's just so many battles to have now when a company becomes like expedia or verizon you know it's got its place and it starts optimizing and then and and remember that's where dari came from expedia and the number one player in that market was was booking.com which is 10 times as big or five times as big as expedia and what they did is they had a wartime footing if you've ever met some of the people over there they're extraordinary they started to do creative things like buy out a whole floor of hotel rooms take the balance sheet risk and then use effectively surge pricing to make profits on it. And they made buckets of money by taking risk and doing new things in new ways. Um, and then become, they became globally dominant. And it's like literally start at the same time, same business, two different approaches. Interesting. Okay. We, we, we certainly have a bunch of, of callers. I'm going to, I'm going to try to cut us off at two forty-five because I know we're already over okay. time, Emil, but uh, let me, sure. so maybe try to keep the, the questions uh, short. Sure. please. So a, a Aradi, you are up. Aradi, you're on the air if you unmute yourself. Hmm, I think we might have lost him. Let's go on. Yeah, hi, everyone. Yeah. Hi. I mean, real quickly, uh, if Travis had stayed, at what point would, have, would he have been comfortable listing the company? Uh, would the IP have happened when it did happen? Yeah, it's a good question. We were talking, we had, uh, and obviously but this is actually, it's a good question because we've, we've never talked about this before publicly, but um, we had talked about being prepared to go public by the end of 2017 at Uber. So we were doing all the controls and the systems that you have to put in place from a regulatory standpoint to get ready so that we, when we decided, could push the button and be public within six months sometime in 2018 or 19. So I think we might've been public earlier. Um, and, and part of the reason for that was not only this liquidity problem that we sort of recognized in the investor base and the employee base, employees want liquidity too after a long time, but just the access to capital because we were spending really a lot of money on this expansion was just much easier to do when you're public and when you're private. Okay, thanks for the answer. Sorry, I managed to fat finger the UI, so I booted it right. I didn't, I didn't mean to do that. I'm sorry, Roddy. Mm -hmm. But um, we do have Bryce. We are running out of time, but we do have Bryce uh, on the caller queue. Bryce, um, go ahead. Thanks. Um, I'll be quick. Did you make like an explicit bet that ride sharing was going to be winner take all globally, and like how it actually played out with Uber and Lyft coexisting in the U.S. and like there's all these other regional players. Do you think that, like, if that was an explicit bet, was that kind of, like, proven wrong by how it actually played out? Yeah, I mean, um, I do think we're wrong in a few places. One, 
I do think we thought it was much more of a winner-take-all scenario. Um, we did not all, all like 100%, but we think when we thought the, the ratio was going to be 90-10. And the reason we thought that was because the efficiency of having a big network meant you could charge lower prices, lower wait times, um, and you were more reliable. And people would just always choose that. The difference, and then we said, yeah, maybe there's this branding thing called the fun car or the pink mustache car that people just like that brand better. And there will always be some people who do that. But I think what we've you know, come to see since then is like, it's probably always gonna be a two player market and it's probably always gonna be 80, 20, 70, 30. That's just sort of how it's worked out in almost every region, except for China where there was just one. Um, and that was definitely some, sort of post post uber that we had and that's a good question yeah so what's the deal with that though like so i will confess to me that when i drove up here from the airport to my place i took lyft because it was one-third the price of uber and i it might i don't know if you still hold uber shares it might yeah. disappoint you to hear that but it was in fact <laughs> true and wh why how is that possible because both companies are now passed way beyond their raise venture capital and set it alight for market share levels of things so how yeah. could you have these massive market disequilibria? And, and I mean, if you do, I guess I can see how they would compete at least due to random noise and nothing else. But I guess, yeah. I, I don't know, can, can, you, yeah. can you proceed on that line a little bit more? Yeah, so, so, so interestingly, most people are not price shoppers. Most people are speed shoppers. Like, so, you know, you, you go into the app, if the car is gonna take six minutes versus three minutes, most people, it's not all, would say, give me the three-minute car even if it's 20% more expensive, right? That may be different on a long ride, like you're talking about through the airport. Um, but generally speaking, that we, you know, that was a fallacy. People were sort of not less price comparing, at least certainly early, and more time comparing. And then, and then mostly they just weren't comparing at all. They just like had a brand and they kept using it. In terms of why the price differentials are so wild now, um, it's, you know, the algorithms just sort of do their thing in weird, weird ways. And one of the observations I've had of late, where both companies have talked about this massive driver shortage, Travis and I joke about it, you're like, well, the surge pricing was meant so that there was never a driver shortage and there was never a demand shortage, right? You raise price until there's enough drivers on the road where there's fewer consumers who want to pay that. And you don't have a driver shortage. That's how it works. But for some reason, these algorithms for both companies have just gotten weird where they do things like you experienced, Antonio, and, and there's this driver shortage that they're paying into instead of just raising price to the point of diminishing returns. So I don't know what's going on and why that's happening. I mean, in theory, if you wanted to quote unquote fix the market and just make it more efficiently clearing and leave aside, you know, to whose benefit, yeah. it seems as if you would facilitate, you'd want one app that would actually compare both markets and both driver and writer could actually compare both markets and opt for either the higher or lower price, depending on what they, what they want. Yeah. And um, apps tried to do that. So there were some apps that tried to sit on top of Uber and Lyft to do that. It just all failed. No one used them. Um, but yes, in theory, that business, that's a business school. Like, yes, in theory, that official market hypothesis should work. The other, the other thing, which, I've, I've always believed that Lyft has done and is still doing is they, they've sort of, they kind of bluff on wait times because they have a smaller network and they know that this time waiting thing is a very, it's an, it's a decision for riders. They sort of shave like three minutes on average off their pickup times. Um, and, and, 
I think they still do that. that. In terms of the price fare difference that you experienced, though, I don't have, I don't have an explanation for that. And it's funny, and you see large fare differences even between cities. For a while, LA was super expensive. I remember I flew down there for an event, and the Uber to get me to where I was going was more expensive than the flight from San Francisco. It was like <laughs> it was like 130 bucks to get from uh, LAX to West Hollywood, and the flight was like 98 bucks or something on United. And it's like, what the fuck, man? This is just too expensive. Um, yes, you look for yellow cab, I guess, right? Um, you know, it's funny. The other, the other challenge, of course, is that for either Lyft and Uber, semi non-urban places, it's still difficult to find riders. So like getting from Reno airport to the high desert isn't so yeah. terrible because locals yeah. here know off-roading. A lot of them, if you get like an Uber XL, it'll be some four-wheel drive thing and that person will probably have been off-roading or whatever. But the yeah, other way around, right. going from the desert to there is Almost impossible, actually. <laughs> and I was actually, it's funny, both apps kind of basically just totally wedge and say they're finding you drivers when they're not. And like an hour later, the request is still in queue. And so I actually started calling cab companies and yeah. it was terrible. It was terrible because I canceled, I, th I forget which one I did, but I canceled one, but not the other. And I got the cab to come out and it's like a guy like on a phone, you can hear road noise. It's like the old shitty cab experience. And then I realized, oh, Uber found me a ride. And I tried to explain to the guy, hey, sorry, I, you know, I left the Uber app open just, and he's like, Oh, we're, I'm going to log your phone number. And if you ever call us again, we're never sending you a cab ever again. And he hung up. And it was like this whole nasty thing from like the early days of Uber or something out here in the wilds of Reno. It was very funny. Um, this, but yeah. this is why I actually think Uber launching taxis of the announcement is a big mistake. Um, we tried it once back in the day because there was this company called Halo that was only doing taxi hailing app. And we said, oh, shit, maybe we have to do it. So we put taxis on the app in San Francisco and some cities. And it drove down customer satisfaction by like half. It was devastating because people had these terrible experiences. There was no recourse. The star system didn't matter with taxis. Like it's not like the taxi medallion owners were going to kick them out because of what Uber said. And um, and you, just, you know they had the same quality of vehicle and the same sort of attitude by drivers. So it was it was I think what they're doing now, and I know why they're doing it because they they say they are out of supply in New York because New York has a supply cap. I just think it's going to have big, big, bad brand impact. One last question, Emil. Sorry, I'm, I'm kind of blowing off Patrick. He was in the queue again. But um, one big thread of the, of, the sh of the show that we didn't mention is the whole autonomous vehicle thing and the whole Anthony Lewandowski thing, which for those who don't know, Lewandowski is this sort of interesting figure, slightly nefarious, um, very driven individual, came out of Berkeley, went to Google, and then, in a, in a rather egregious way, stole a lot of documents from Google while selling a company to Uber. And then he was kind of unceremoniously dumped from Uber. Um, and But a lot of, at least in episode, whatever that was, four or five or so, um, a lot of the hopes of Travis and the company were like, well, these drivers, we're going to have AVs in a second. You know, it doesn't, doesn't really matter. Was it really such a big bet internally, this whole autonomous vehicle thing? It was a big bet internally. So that, this, you know, Travis and I agreed on a lot of things, but one thing that, you know, we debated a lot was like the level of investment we had in autonomy. And while I'd never like to agree with Bill Gurley, I agreed with him on this, which is like the, the amount, it was just so far away in terms of like it being a reality, both technologically and from a regulatory standpoint, that like spending so much money so early on was just a mistake. Um, but it was really a driving force of the company. I mean, we ended up having, what, 800 people, like the biggest autonomy sort of um, collection of engineers in the world, even bigger than Google's at one point. So it was, a, it was definitely a big deal. 
Um, the show did some like weird stuff with that. I don't know if you saw that scene where supposedly Travis asked me to go fire Anthony Lewandowski, which obviously never happened on some dark, lonely road. Yeah. Um, and then the show put in like two Nazi references too. It was just really just strange stuff. Um, but the but the the autonomous vehicle thing was was a big deal, and anyone who was there can can could attest to that. That's funny. I remember that. I, one of the last stories I did for Wired was on autonomous vehicles. And, you know, there was this sort of enthusiasm circa, I, I don't know, I might be getting the years wrong, 2013 to like 2018, call it, in which people, like consensus opinion was that autonomous vehicles were around the corner. And, you know, there was even a YC company, Cruise, that got acquired by GM. And, you know, Elon also made a lot of big promises. And at least when it comes to city driving, a lot of those promises have kind of never been realized um, although I have to say, I, I am a Tesla owner and I use autopilot to drive to San Francisco all the time. And I have to say, it's actually pretty damn good. And even if, in my opinion, even if autonomous vehicles never got past where they are now, um, once everyone has something similar to autopilot, it's going to totally yeah. change the way people move around. So I don't think you need total autonomy for it to be revolutionary, but it's clear that it's going to be a lot slower than I guess people thought at the time. Yeah. But you know, for, for Uber autonomy, yeah, sure. Partial autonomy about making the drive the driver safer and so on, you know, would be good and advantageous to the experience. But the whole, you know, from the cost standpoint, the idea like you can't take a driver and you know and have out of the car unless the car can literally drive itself, right? So right. it's sort of binary in that respect. Right. No, it has to be at, right. It has to drive as, as well as a human in like the yeah. hairy streets of San Francisco, which yeah. is a very is a is a hard nut to crack. In fact, if you drive around San Francisco, it's funny. Tesla does no street driving or training because it has a, a different way of of doing ML. Yeah. But um, you know, a lot of companies like you just drive around and you still see a bunch of lidar cars zipping around, yeah. and it's just odd because they haven't actually, at least as far as I know, they haven't shipped like a production fully autonomous city vehicle, although. Again, I don't want to be snarky or cynical about it. I assume it'll happen at some point in the future, but it just does seem like those cars have been around San Francisco for a good long time. And like the only commercial thing I've, I've asked, like I've seen of it is once again, Tesla with its autopilot, which it's funny yeah. if you post, if you post about it, all these both Tesla lovers and Elon haters come out and just like your, your mentions become a complete fucking fiasco. So I've, <laughs> I've, I've, I've stopped doing it. Like, I think I, I think I claimed that Tesla's autopilot was like level three autonomy, which in my opinion, it functionally is, but uh, officially it isn't. So anyhow, this whole debate about whether it's level two or three, it's like, dude, this car just drove over. The what the fuck you call it? That is magical. And if everyone has this, like, it's obviously going to change everything, right? Like that's, that's really what matters. But in any case, um, so I see that Patrick's been waiting very patiently. So you know what? Last question, and then we'll let you go, Emil. Okay. Patrick, right. you're, you're back for round two. Nice. Thank you. Um, yeah, can you talk about what it was like to operate in China and um, kind of what led uh, you guys to ultimately uh, leave that market? Yeah. Man, let me tell you, China, Uber China was the most thrilling experience in my career above all everything else I did at Uber in generally. Um, and it was a lot more optimistic in 2014, 15, 16, in terms of U.S.-China relations. Like, you know, Zuckerberg was going over there to try to convince the president to let Facebook exist. Um, all the investment banks were getting, trying to get a law passed so they could open sort of their branches there. You know, Uber was like, actually, you know, we were in existence there. We weren't shut down. So there was a lot of optimism that maybe, you know, we were going to become sort of this, this you know, global economy and China was going to have start playing fair in terms of intellectual property and letting local, you know, foreign companies compete. 
so it was really exciting. But, you know, the Chinese competition stuff is no joke. I mean, the things they do from a competitive standpoint are, you know, the tactics are, which are accepted there are way, way beyond anything that would be acceptable in our, in our country. Um, uh, and therefore, it was thrilling. But I will say this, that, that because transportation is such a city-based thing, like mayors care about transportation, I went to meet mayors and do these ceremonies, tea ceremonies with them all over the country. And every mayor wanted Uber to exist in China because they didn't want a monopoly. They didn't want just Didi. They wanted Uber and Didi because we would keep each other honest. And for them, they just wanted their, their citizens to be able to get affordable, reliable rides around the city. So it's it really fascinating that maybe at the top level, they didn't want American companies doing too well. But at the bottom level, at these mayoral city level stuff, they really wanted us to to continue existing. So it was really, really fascinating in that respect. You know, it's funny that, again, the series and the book Super Pump so take me back to that period. I mean, you remind me of the fact that back in the day, American companies did actually try to enter China. And there was a whole debate about like how much would you kind of bend the knee for, for the sake of the right. Chinese government? And like, you know, Google was actively censoring results, but Facebook would take this brave stand. Zuck made a vow to himself to teach himself Mandarin. I mean, there was all this excitement about entering China. And as far as I can tell, every American corporation has basically given up on China and that's the end of it. And, and China, other than the geopolitical threat, doesn't even feature in, in our news cycle anymore. Yeah, it's gone. I mean, the, the notion of a uh, uh, thawing of relations is dead. It's just gone. And, and, it, and it changed literally from 2017 to 2020. And it was, it was over. And, you know, it's, and I used to say like, well, I mean, who cares, right? Like, fine, the Chinese block us out, but their ability to actually create consumer products that anyone would use, at least until TikTok was pretty limited. Um, and then, of course, TikTok has upended that. And if you look at things like engagement stats, like they're, they're, at least within certain age brackets, it's way higher on TikTok than it is on Facebook, for example. So I'm curious what you think about that, because obviously it's asymmetric. Like our, our apps can't operate there, but theirs can't operate here. Should TikTok be banned, for example, as one question? Uh, getting into sort of national security sort of questions. Um, you know, I do think that it's curious that our social media apps are not allowed in a country of 1.3 billion people. But, you know, so there's some just fairness there that, that concerns me. Um, in terms of the data that, that TikTok gets about Americans through their habits, yeah, there's some concern there, but I, you know, I don't quite know what to do about it. Like, imagine trying to rip TikTok out of 50 million teenagers' hands right now in the U.S. Um, <laughs> you might have people take the streets. So I, I, don't, I don't know what the answer is, Antonio, on that, but I'm, I'm, I'm thinking on it. You're on mute, bud. Sorry, no, I think um, I'm talking to you via Starlink, and I think the satellites yeah. are not correctly aligned. Sorry, I missed it, the past 10 seconds, but um, in any case. Yeah. Um, I said I didn't know. I don't know what the answer is there, because it would be good to have some reciprocity in terms of our social right. media apps going there, but that's not happening. So right. what do we do about TikTok? Well, we have 50 million teenagers in this country and maybe 200 million in the Western world that are or using this app every day, what are you gonna take it away from them? How's that work? Um, you know, maybe you could do some open source algorithm thing. You know, maybe there's servers in the US you could do so that the data doesn't go back to China. Maybe there's some, some form of that that has to work. But I don't know, I don't know what it is. 
Well, I mean, India Bandit, right? I remember I was working yeah. a branch at the time, yeah. and um, we work with a bunch of companies, and so we'd have visibility into, for a bunch of reasons I won't get into, but into what what apps users were actually using. And from like literally one day to another, the TikTok curve just flatlined yeah. like a heart attack patient. So, and you know, India's a bigger market than ours, actually, and so it is possible, but it requires a level of political conviction that I think the United States probably doesn't have right now. Yeah, and, and it has to, you know, I, I, I'm just, you know, it's probably incorporated, the U.S. part of TikTok is probably incorporated as an American company, and they're going to say they have due process, and it'll go through something. It's not just, you can just shut it down by fiat in, in a country like the U.S., I don't think. Yeah, I mean, it, yeah, this really hints at the bigger question, which is like, to what degree should the United States effectively impose its values on the outside world by yeah. having certain policies in place? I mean, you see it even now, um, with you know Elon making certain commentaries about the new content moderation for Twitter policy for Twitter, and um, he was palling around with I forget what what DPA uh, officer from the EU or whatever, and he you know he said something to placate them, which sounded which seemed to be run counter to actually what he had said about following kind of a one A pattern a U.S. First Amendment pattern to free speech policy. But it comes down to the question like, well, what does that mean? So what are you gonna are you gonna follow the laws in some authoritarian government and actually and effectively aid and abet the government censoring its own people? Or are you gonna say, well, no? I mean, and again, nobody in the Western world can say this now. American values are better, and if you don't like it, well, then build your own Twitter, and that's the end of it, right? right, um, right. Which again, nobody can say these days, and so we're just kind of stuck. Um, we're kind of stuck. Yeah, we're stuck. I don't know how this sorts out, but. I'm sure you're going to be doing a lot more podcasts about the Elon stuff um, because it's <laughs> probably one of the most fascinating sort of, um, you know, political business things that are happening, clashes that are happening in the country right now. Yeah, well, actually, last week's guest was Renee, who's a free speech disinformation researcher, and the Elon thing was was a hot topic. Then I'll, I'll let you go. I mean, I know we're way over time. Thank you for being generous for your time. I'm sure it's warm and sunny in Florida where you are, and you have way better things to do than talking into this device. But thanks again for your time, Emil, and thanks again for your uh, sort of frank appraisal and uh, you know going down memory lane. I imagine memory lane in this case is not always such a pleasant trip, and I'm sure <laughs> maybe a reminder of some things you'd rather forget. Uh, now, getting getting truth out there and, and, and celebrating the employees who built that business and worked their asses off and making sure that they don't feel like they, they weren't part of something important because they were. And it was a great place to work for 99% of the people there. And it's something they'd always be proud of. That's, that's important to me. So it was worth doing for that alone. Yeah. And I can definitely confirm. I know, I know quite a, f a few former Uber people and there definitely is a feeling, and this is not true of every company, by the way, of like an, I, mafia is perhaps not the right connotation, but there is an Uber vibe to people and that it marked their lives and the way they do things. And it's like a relationship they've kept um, for the rest of their lives. And it's kind of marked their lives later on in life. And it's funny that that definitely did not come out in the, in the yeah. series, unfortunately. Um, but in any case, Thanks again, Emil, Take for your care. for your time. And um, next week, let me just do a plug. I'm in Miami. However, I'm interviewing Tyler Cohen and uh, Michael Gross, who have a new book out uh, called Talent, about sourcing talent. And it's going to be a really weird time. I'm not quite sure why, but Tyler is in some weird time zone. So I'll, I'll, I'll be transmitting from Miami and talking to Tyler at, I think, 8 a.m. Eastern time or something. But it, Tyler Cohen, if you don't know him, is probably, in my opinion, the best podcast host working right now. He's a brilliant guy and, and it's probably gonna be an interesting podcast guest. So uh, I'll post a time for that um, next week. But in any case, thanks for, uh, thanks for joining. And thanks again, Emil for um, see you, man. See you, man. Bye. Bye. Bye.